Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is A Reason for Hope, and we are with you live for the next hour to receive and answer your questions on God's Word, the Bible. That's right, your questions guide our show, so please do send your questions in on the various live platforms, and we'd love to delve into the Word with you. Any question that you have, maybe a verse or passage of Scripture, maybe something you're going through in your life, in your world, and you'd like to honor the Lord, but not sure how to do that. We'd love to delve into the Bible and find those, those answers. We believe the Word is God's inspired Word without error, breathed out by Him, inspired by Him, and it's relevant and has the answers to life and the universe and everything. So join us for this next hour as we uh, go whichever way it's going to go. It's guided by your questions. My name is Dave Robson. I will be fielding your questions as they come on in through our various platforms and with us also today as is almost always the case pastor sean richards how are you doing today good definitely uh adjusting to new contacts i had to get the prescriptions checked and you'll never guess who i ran into on the way there who did you run into on the way there everybody <laughs> you might want to get them checked again well on the way there i yeah. guess on the way back you may have been doing yeah get them with you i'm with you yeah <laughs> Yeah, and you had a, a, a problem with a deck of cards, I understand. Oh, you want, me to do, you want me to go there? <laughs> <laughs> I did. Hang on, let me, let me remember it. Yeah. yeah, I had something just terrible happen today. Someone uh, took my, my pack of cards and stuck all the cards together, and I just can't deal with it. <laughs> when I heard him say that, by the way, it became very apparent to me that discipleship is working here. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Sean is rubbing yeah. off on you, Please Dave. Please come with a joke yourself next time. And then Not we'll that I ever tell uh, what we could call dad jokes. No, never, never, never. Only never. Usually only from the pulpit. Well, with us, as you uh, probably <laughs> guessed by now, Pastor Scott Richards, how are you doing today? <laughs> I'm doing fantastic, Dave. It's great to be here. Yeah, can't believe it's Friday again. It seems like I'm always saying it's Friday already, and they're just... Yeah, whipping around. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. Time flies when you're in a blind panic. I always yeah, say. <laughs> I, I, I attest to that. Also, well, there's various ways you can join us, and if you're hearing us and seeing us, then you found a way. If you're listening to us on Reach Radio, you are listening to our last show pre-recorded, uh, our previous show pre-recorded. Wasn't our last show? We're going to do many shows after this, but um, Lord willing, anyway. Lord willing, that's right. <laughs> yeah. But do send your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. Questions for hope spelled out at gmail.com. That is our email address, and we will endeavor to get to uh, those questions on our next show. But everywhere else, we are live. A Reason for Hope is a, a ministry and outreach of Calvary Christian Fellowship here in Tucson, Arizona. So keep that in mind when you're trying to find us. If you go to Facebook, look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, you will find us there. On our website as well, calvarychristianfellowship.com. Follow the Watch Live tab. We have a mobile app um, for your mobile device, cell phone, etc., and also on Roku and Apple TV. So look for Calvary Christian Fellowship, download the app, and you can join us there as well. If you're joining us on YouTube or would like to find us on YouTube, the channel is A Reason for Hope. That's A Reason for Hope on YouTube. So once again, please send in your questions. We are live, getting early. Sometimes we do run out of time, so we'd love to receive your questions early um, and get to all of those today. You can also follow Pastor Scott on Twitter at Scott R for H. That's Scott, letter R, number four. Letter H, where he posts uh, highlights from the show and yeah, uh, prophecy uh, updates, uh, comments on uh, events of the day from a uh, biblical point of view. Uh, occasionally, we get into it online. Oh, I bet uh, with uh, some of those who uh, maybe don't really uh, dig the whole Christian thing. So yeah, yeah, yeah. That there aren't any of those, are there? <laughs> a few, a couple, couple. Yeah, of them? Wow. Okay. yeah. As we were saying before airtime, uh, we've gotten some uh, comments from a particular 
cult group that I guess referred to us as, what was the reference specifically they called us? Ultimately the devil incarnate, but sons of the devil because all we do is lie. I replied, well, since you're making accusations as opposed to giving examples, and the devil's name means accuser, I guess the irony's not lost on me. Yeah, so you're nobody until somebody has called you a son of the devil. <laughs> that, that, that was our consensus right, yeah. before airtime. So yeah, you do get that. Yeah. And, um, you know, you put uh, Christianity out in the marketplace of ideas, uh, maybe start making an impact, and opposition is going to uh, rear its ugly head, so to speak. Absolutely. So, and what was it Jesus said about if they hate him, then they're going to hate those that come after him? And... Yeah, no, they hated me first, Jesus said. Right. Yeah. yeah and absolutely. woe unto you when all men speak well of you, because they spoke well of the false prophets. So, yeah. you know, we don't want to go out of our way, I guess, to be obnoxious, uh, you know, uh, pushing people's buttons, uh, and then, you know, give ourselves credit for being persecuted, obviously. Mm. But I think if we just speak the truth and love in Christ, sooner or later that's going to come your way. Yeah. You know, that, let's make sure that if we are being criticized or being called a son of the devil, it's uh, because uh, we're staying close to Jesus, not because we're giving credence to those kind of accusations. Right. Yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's a good benchmark for sure. Yeah. Well, Sean, would you like to pray for us today before we go any further? Yeah, happy to. Let's do it. Dad, thank you that we have the chance to gather here. We know that's not something we will enjoy forever, but it is something that we will present as an offering to you today. Equip us to give answers not only from your heart, but your word, and to represent and honor both accordingly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, once again, please send your questions in on the various platforms wherever you're joining us. Also, our email address, questionsforhope at gmail.com. I will be fielding those as they come on in, so we'd love for you to be part of the broadcast. Uh, Pastor Scott, do you have anything to share with us today? You you keep a good eye on the news and world events. Is there anything uh, going on you'd like to share with us? Well, it's we... not a it's not a current event, although I guess it is uh, something that was discovered somewhat uh, currently. Uh, there's been a really remarkable discovery made, uh, and at least uh, publicized uh, in Israel. It was made a few years back, but there was a stone uh, that was discovered. Uh, near the area that is uh, known as Hezekiah's Tunnel uh, in Israel. If you go on a, a trip to Israel with us, uh, you'll go through a tour that goes by Hezekiah's Tunnel. Uh, what it is is just a remarkable feat of engineering. It is a uh, aqueduct, if you will, that is chiseled through over 700 feet of solid rock that was uh, designed to bring the spring water from the Gihon Spring in through the walls of Jerusalem, which was a real essential, uh, considering that walled cities uh, were often subject to siege warfare, where an enemy would come and surround them. And one of the most important essentials you needed to have under your belt to survive a siege would be having water. Uh, and uh, so the uh, Hezekiah's Tunnel uh, project uh, is just a, a remarkable one indeed. Well, uh, there were some... Uh, some areas of, uh, I guess we would call uh, uh, trash heaps uh, that were found that uh, were ancient in uh, their orientation. Israeli archaeologists went through some of these, and a limestone fragment was found near uh, the man-made pool in Siloam, uh, the, uh, and uh, it uh, was dated to roughly around the 8th century BC. The interesting thing about it was it had an inscription up upon it. Uh, the inscription uh, was translated uh, finally, and uh, the uh, the uh, uh, the transcription's uh, translation was publicized 
uh, just earlier this week, and it said that uh, it said this in essence: Hezekiah made the pool in Jerusalem. Now, what they've uh, discerned uh, from the nature of this particular stone uh, is that this was a dedication uh, plaque. When the uh, tunneling was finished, uh, it was put up there, uh, but it is found. It was found. It was uh, broken. And uh, there's another interesting sidelight that goes along uh, with this. There are other mentions of King Hezekiah that we find from archaeology at Tel Lachish uh, National Park, 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem. Archaeologists uh, found uh, the remains of an ancient altar uh, dated to the time of Hezekiah. The interesting thing is that uh, this uh, prosperous uh, city of Lachish is mentioned two dozen times in the Bible and was destroyed about 700 BC by the Assyrians. Uh, but uh, the interesting thing was they found an altar there whose horns had been purposely cut off. Uh, again, the book of Second Kings says Hezekiah removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. Uh, Sarganor, who's the uh, director of excavations at Lachish, explained that it is most interesting that the horns on the altar were intentionally truncated. This is probably evidence of the religious reform attributed to King Hezekiah, whereby religious worship was centralized in Jerusalem. And the cultic high places were built outside, that were built outside the capital were destroyed. Uh, he went on to say, before our very eyes, these new finds become the biblical verses themselves and speak in their voice. Uh, believe it or not, this is kind of an interesting one. Uh, they also discovered a stone toilet at Lachish that was placed in one of the chambers at the gate of the city. Most likely it was put there to defile the former altar in the same way that Jehu desecrated a Baal temple by turning it into a public bathroom, according to 2 Kings chapter 10 and verse 27. They demolished the sacred stones of Baal and tore down the temple of Baal, and people have used it for a latrine to this very day. So, uh, you know, the, the very interesting thing about all of this is that the more archaeological discoveries that are made in Israel, the more we find they confirm rather than uh, contradict uh, the biblical references that we have. Uh, people get very, very excited about saying, well, archaeology proves the Bible. Uh, I believe it was on the Answers in Genesis website uh, where they uh, actually said, actually, archaeology doesn't prove the Bible. The Bible really verifies solid archaeology. So uh, uh, the reliability of the Bible, once again, uh, we see is uh, written in stone. Interestingly, you know, they wondered why this dedication stone was shattered in the way that it was. Well, Hezekiah's son Manasseh uh, succeeded him as king, but uh, again, he is described as being more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. And in 1 Kings chapter 21, we're told an interesting thing about Manasseh. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He also erected altars to Baal and made an Asherah pole, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. He bound down to all the starry hosts and worshiped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, which the Lord said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. In the two courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to the starry host. He sacrificed his own son in the fire practiced divination, sought omens, and consulted mediums and spirits. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord. Archaeologists believe that one of the reasons that this dedication stone mentioning Zedekiah was shattered was because uh, someone like Manasseh, and this was very common uh, for individuals that would, say, seize power 
from a different king that they opposed, they would go through and they would smash all references to the mm. previous king. Manasseh even did that to his own father in his rebellion against God. How interesting that Manasseh uh, was the longest reigning king among the kings of Judah. But what happened to Manasseh at the end of his life? Well, interestingly enough, the Assyrians were still in power and they had a notorious way with prisoners. They took him captive. This was, again, uh, sometime before the Babylonian captivity. But in whatever circumstance they led him to, he was dragged, not just kicking and screaming, but uh, grunting and snorting. They put a hook through his nose and dragged him by a chariot, no short distance, by the way, all the way to Nineveh, where he spent the majority of It's over 100 miles, yeah. Yeah, and of course, uh, (laughs) during that time, you got a chance to think in between spurts of pain and blood, and he was able to come to terms with the fact that all of my life's decisions have led me here. I think I'm going to learn something from my old man. What was unfortunate, however, is that even though God didn't give up on Manasseh, there were still physical consequences, not just in his, uh, I guess, teenager's accessory treatment, but also the uh, sad fact that his son also followed in his example, and Israel continued to become more and more wicked. As a result of his influence, there were uh, one or two good kings that came after Manasseh before things ultimately circled the drain. But it's really important to note that while God isn't giving up on even the the Hitler of Israel's history, let's just put it that way, uh, there was still and there were still rather consequences for those actions, both in the immediate and in the long term, for his people and his legacy. Yeah, but he did turn back to the Lord at the end of his life. Mm-hmm. You know, to sum all this up, uh, Professor Gershon Galil, who is the head of the Institute for Biblical Studies and Ancient History at Haifa University, and not a, a uh, believer in Christ, uh, was asked what the significance of this study is. He said, this discovery strengthens the approach of researchers who emphasize the reliability of the Bible, since it teaches that right in front of the eyes of the Bible's authors stood monuments with royal inscriptions at the time of the kings mentioned in the Bible. So fascinating stuff indeed. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Well, we have questions uh, coming in. This one's a bit of a follow-up from yesterday. We had a question about... um, nakedness and whether that was in itself a sin um talking about how adam and eve were first naked and how jesus was uh naked when he was crucified by certainly by the end of it so we had a good question discussion about that nina was asking um today what what is a biblical perspective on modesty and can we go too far with modesty maybe back to victorian times when it was from your ankles up to your neck um she was at a a gathering recently and was challenged on how she was dressed although she felt she was dressed modestly with shorts that were to her knees etc but can we go too far with modesty thinking that if we cover up more we are being more holy or what is it what is the biblical standard for modesty well obviously there's uh grounds and lines to be drawn when it comes to legalism as determining holiness, but then there's also an equal and opposite abuse in saying that I'm perfectly modest in my heart. It's your fault that you see this as immodest. Mm. When it comes to the kind of attitude we should be practicing, not just in modesty, but the foundation of it, love, respect for our neighbor, It should be to, as Jesus himself said, esteem others as better than ourselves. Mm -hmm. If we have to inconvenience ourselves for the sake of their well-being, it's a worthy sacrifice. However, if they tack inaccurate theology to it, that's where we would step in. 
you can't be too respectful, but you can compromise truth. So let's make sure we understand where the line is. Uh, usually when people are talking about modesty, uh, obviously Proverbs 30 and 31 rather and verse 30 come to mind that uh, charm is deceitful, beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord, she is to be praised. That's obviously a good example of modesty in action, but as far as a description, um, the New Testament obviously, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 9 goes into the detail that women should adorn themselves in modest apparel. Uh, some translations note it as respectful or respectable, and that's the point being communicated with modesty and self-control, and then goes on to note not with braided hair or costly attire, because we, of course, uh, if we're going to profess godliness, should look the part, and also, it goes on to say, with good works, act the part. Another passage, I think, in broader strokes is in First Peter chapter 3, uh, where Peter, talking about women, and let me just turn to the passage so that I don't butcher it in my... Well, I can read uh, it for you. Yeah, go ahead if you it can. It says... Uh, uh, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparels. Uh, rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. So, with that in mind, Peter's not saying, therefore, throw out modesty. It's the idea that these things don't reflect beauty. Right. So, if we're asked the question what good works are going to accompany those who profess godliness. Well, generally, since guys don't uh, tend to show off more of their bodies than they have to unless in very specific circumstances, Peter and Paul both address specifically women because that's generally the audience that needs to keep vanity in mind. It's not exclusive, but it serves the point. When we ask ourselves the question, what do people take away from us when we look at. It's having that sort of attitude of love and respect and saying, you know what, I want to represent God here. And if I'm causing my brother to stumble, even on unreasonable pretenses, I can have the grace of saying, well, for your sake, I would rather be more respectful rather than less. And if it's unreasonable, then note, you'll have a jewel in your crown for that. You modeled Christ's heart. He was very reasonable among unreasonable people and will stand and fall before his father as to what was actually the problem. We can make vague references to Matthew 5 where it notes that it's the problem with the lustful eyes rather than the lack of attire on the body. But we also talked about this yesterday. There is also a line that we ought to consider given our culture. Yeah, and what is modest and immodest. If you come to a company that understands that differently than the consensus view or even your own personal view, then that's the point. Modesty is a sign of respect and an opportunity to reflect the character of God, who didn't expect us to come to his level, but condescended to our level and allowed us to meet him where uh, we or met us where he we were at, yeah. is the way I'm trying to phrase yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, if we're put out or upset or even offended, perhaps, at the accusations made. Obviously, uh, we've had encounters with people with too high standards for modesty, or at least very inconsistent standards for modesty, a la the wakfa in Jordan's uh, occupied territory yeah. in the Temple yeah. Mount. But we still were willing to cover up because we wanted to set a positive example and also didn't want to get rocks thrown at our head again. So the point being made is just that, Nina, if we're asked to be more modest, you have the opportunity to model Christ's heart. If you're 
being told that immodesty or modesty therein is necessary for righteousness, that's the problem. But if we're put in a situation where we can be more respectful to someone, we shouldn't pass it up. Yeah, you know, I, I think uh, there's a really interesting uh, principle in Romans 14, and the only thing I would add to it, in uh, verse 8, it says, For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Uh, you know, I just think any kind of decision that we make along these lines, uh, we have to ask ourselves the question, okay, what would the Lord want me to do? Uh, you know, as far as uh, the kind of apparel that someone wears at church or a Bible study, I think the line that you draw is, I don't want to be... Uh, gaining such attention to myself that people can't focus on God. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, that doesn't mean that, you know, we wear a gunny sack or, you know, we dress, you know, like Quakers or the Amish or something, because that turns around and again, focuses attention on yourself. You know, take, I guess the old uh, saying is read the room. Um, take a look at what the general consensus is as far as, uh, propriety of dress and do likewise. Um, uh, you know, again, if, uh, you know, and, and I, I guess there's exceptions to that. If I were to speak, say, uh, at a, a gathering at the U of A, uh, I want to go out and uh, get some henna tattoos and, uh, you know, uh, uh, some mega skinny, Whatever the kids are mega doing these days. jeans or, you know, <laughs> look like some kind of a, you know, a hipster or something like that. I'd be who I am because that's really pretty much what people would expect out of someone from my particular demographic group, you know, you know, okay, boomer, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. People expect boomers to act like boomers. And if I try to dress like them, then once again, that's calling attention to myself. That's distracting from the message. You know, you just have to use wisdom and discernment in these areas. Yeah. 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 Very good. It often comes back. I know Sean, I, many questions you bring it back to what, what is the loving thing to do? you know, towards consider other people. And I think that's such a great point in so many questions and issues. You know, can we do something? Yes. Is it the most loving thing? Is it putting other people before ourselves? Um, it's such a great thing to apply to so many things. And I, and I, I love that. It's, you know, it's a loving, it's a loving uh, approach to these things. Well, Nina, thank you. I hope that helps you out. Thank you for your question and being part of our, our show today. A question from Talon um, about Matthew 12, 31 and 32. He oh. asked what... Does it mean it's uh, about speaking against the Holy Spirit? Yeah, so, boy, yeah, that, that's when we get a lot. Uh, yeah, what is sure. The, yeah. What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Well, it's a huge question because uh, in Matthew chapter 12, uh, Jesus uh, said, boy, if you're walking down this particular road, if you are getting close to doing this particular sin, uh, you are in a peck of trouble. Verse 31 says, therefore, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, Sean, there's an incident that sets the stage for Jesus' statement about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, correct? Yeah, uh, again, same chapter, just a few verses back, in fact, eight verses back, when the Pharisees heard it, that is in reference to a blind man who was also mute, was able to speak and see, and it's also identified by Matthew. This was not a result of a injury or birth defect. It was, in fact, supernaturally 
cost, demon possession. Yeah, and Jesus cast out that demon. Now, the Pharisees, when they heard it, said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. So they are attributing a work of God to the devil. And note, Beelzebub, it just means Lord of the Flies. It's not a reference to a... uh, children's book that was meant to show the base nature of man. It was a reference really to... nasty Philistine deity. Yeah, and yeah. it's, of course, yeah. one of the names that were attributed to Satan. It's not acknowledging Beelzebub's existence. <coughs> it's noting one of the names that were attributed to the wicked one. Right. Make sure that we specify that. But uh, note the point that's being made. They attribute to the enemy the works of the ally. (laughs) And they uh, are given a response by Jesus. Jesus knew their thoughts. So notice they didn't say this out loud. He pointed out to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every house divided against itself will not stand. So he lays out a basic principle. Civil war isn't the best time for home defense. If you have people fighting each other, Inwardly, they're not going to be able to resist threats outwardly. Then he goes on to apply their reasoning to the situation. He says, if Satan casts out Satan, uh, will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? But if I cast out demons by your, uh, uh, excuse me, if I cast out demons uh, by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come to you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then he will plunder his house. Then goes on to make the punchline, He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Now, this would be applicable in maybe one of our rhetoric lessons, but what uh, Jesus is doing here is using a form of logic called reductio ad absurdum. You show how ridiculous the situation is and then reduce it down to the fundamental arguments and showing where the mistake is. He gives three examples. First, noting if this is a situation, he assumes that they're right. If I'm casting out Satan by Satan, why are you? Why do you have a problem with this? Aren't you glad that Satan has a civil war going on? That means that his kingdom's about to fall. On the other hand, if exorcisms are what you consider demonic, don't your followers also perform exorcisms? So why is it right when you do it and wrong when I do it? And then ultimately brings it back home and says, but if on the other hand, I'm doing this by the Spirit of God, what's your problem here? And then goes on to note the line in the sand. So notice that the immediate audience, the context of the situation, the statement where he says, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, is leading up to and followed up by what? A notifying people of them making a ridiculous claim that they are assuming not only something that's not true, but doesn't even make sense if you assume it's true, which is the problem. If Jesus is doing these things, you'd ask the question for a reason. You don't Mm -hmm. find a way to make it evil because you think he's evil. Mm -hmm. So then following up on that, he says, every sin... Uh, and in blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. So he brings to attention what they're doing. They're attributing to God evil. They're blaming the works of God on the devil. They're explaining away God's evidence for himself and objectively rejecting the Savior. So this is the point, and there are plenty of people throughout history who've taken the same approach. 
if we're put in a situation where we have the opportunity, and again, speaking to fellow believers, we're going to take a step back and put on our unbeliever shoes or something. If I'm put in a situation where I understand what God's saying, I'm experiencing something, whether it's a gift of prophecy, someone speaking into my life something that I know is true, and I just have this inclination to respond properly to it, if I'm hearing the gospel, if I'm seeing a miracle, which they did in this case, and I say, eh, eh, yeah, that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Because note, what you practice, you get better at. And if you practice, you develop a lifestyle of eh, yeah. then what's going to happen when your last eh is uh, yeah. if you don't mind the morbidity? <laughs> I kind of like the way that was expressed. That's profound, <laughs> yeah, Sean. That's yeah. profound. <laughs> Talk about yeah. rhetoric. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you know, again, people ask the question, okay, can the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, is it a sin that can be committed today? Obviously, these uh, people saw Jesus do this miracle, cast the demon out. Uh, people today don't see Jesus actually doing such things. So, you know, you know is, is that a, uh, a legitimate uh, sin to be concerned about? Well, yes, in fact, it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when we look at the role of the Holy Spirit, particularly in salvation, uh, John chapter 16 and verses 9 through 11 says that when the Spirit of God has come, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Well, it's the Holy Spirit who lets us know, convinces us beyond a shadow of a doubt, that three things are true. First of all, sin. The reason that we don't know God, the reason that our life is a wreck, is because we're sinners. We are separated from God. The righteousness, a right relationship with God, has been made available through what Jesus did by dying on the cross and rising from the dead so that by putting our faith and trust in him, we can be saved. But judgment means that one day we will be held accountable for saying yes or no to that decision. Now, the Holy Spirit is not just here on earth to entertain believers. In fact, I don't think he's here to entertain believers at all. Uh, you know, it's, he's not just here to, you know, give us spiritual gifts and build us up in our walk with God. He does all those things. But he is here primarily to draw people to a saving relationship with God. Now, if in that drawing process, you know, like you said, Sean, the Holy Spirit says, well, you got a sin problem. Eh, no, I don't. Um, what have we just done? Well, in a sense, we've committed not just rejection of that truth, but a values judgment on the one who brings that truth. We've said of the Holy Spirit, you're a liar. If the Holy Spirit reveals to us that a right relationship with God is available by putting our faith and trust in Jesus, we go, I, I think uh, all religious roads lead to the same uh, great ocean, which is God. What have we said about the Holy Spirit? We've said, you're lying to me. You're not telling me the truth. If the Holy Spirit convicts us that one day we're going to be held accountable for saying yes or no to a relationship with Jesus, okay, and we say no, what have we said about the Holy Spirit? We've called him a liar. To call God a liar is textbook blasphemy, if you yeah. want to use that uh, Bible-y word. Mm-hmm. You know, and so the, the, the problem, and I think, Sean, you brought this up, the problem with the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is you know, all of us at one time or another in our lives before we received the Lord probably rejected the message mm-hmm. before we actually received it. Right. You know, and so all of us, to one degree or another, committed that sin. Mm-hmm. Well, if we continue to perpetually reject the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, like you mentioned, Sean, 
practice makes perfect. Yeah. Pretty soon the and and eh, eh, turns into what? Ugh. Yeah, and that's it. <laughs> turns into what? Yeah. What is it? I, I think we've hammered. That. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't uh, get you on camera doing it. Yeah, though. exactly. <laughs> For the record, but, but but that's that's the truth. You know, people say, "Well, I'll just receive Jesus on my deathbed." Well, a, how do you know you're going to have a deathbed? Mm-hmm. How do you know the last thing you see on this earth before you leave are the letters that you're crossing the street and letters GMC are coming at your face? Not a lot of time to get right then, right? But secondly, you know, you know, well, you know, I think I can kind of play God for a fool and I can go ahead and live any way I want. But when I'm on that deathbed, then I'll get right with the Lord. Well, you know, again, the the scripture says today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart five different times. And then the sixth time, God stiffened, made stiff mm. Pharaoh's heart. Mm. Said, your will be done, Pharaoh. And then it's interesting how the rest of the 10 plagues, it went back and forth. Mm. You know, you don't want to run the risk of stiffening up your heart so that you yeah. can't repent. But be careful, because that practice makes perfect principles. Really true. Yeah, we're not promised to tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, very good. Uh, well, great question. Thank you. Thank you for that, Talon. Um, like you said, it's a common question. One of those kind of scary questions uh, passages of, of scripture that right ju- up there with matthew 7 yeah. yeah right right that's like whoa uh question from yari here welcome yari thanks for being part of our show here one of our regulars um he asked was jesus death basically suicide he said he went, had a friend who went to a church that taught that jesus basically gave himself up so it, could it have considered jesus committed suicide two very different things suicide and sacrifice Uh, first let's make sure that we understand things on jesus terms when he said that the killing of myself or in this case the allowance of myself to be killed is Mm. the suicide by cop illustration that your friend gave um in john chapter 10 and verse 18 jesus explains exactly what he was there to do he says i have been given power to lay down my life and to take it up again, this command I've received from my Father. Now, that's different from suicide in that, A, that command doesn't come from the Father. B, that authority to lay down our life and to take it up again isn't from the Father. The act of suicide is the willful taking of the authority of your life into your own hands rather than, in God the Son's case, him being given that direct authority and for a specific reason, a sacrifice. And a laying down is the intentional, as right. in on an altar, that the shedding of this blood would be efficacious, if you want to use the fancy term, yeah. in redeeming us from our sins. If we were to say that the substance of Jesus' death was just a suicide, then we're not only looking at it at a very surface, shallow level, we haven't even actually looked at the surface yet, because all we're grasping of this concept of what Jesus went through was a physical death. Now, everyone went through that, but why do we pay more attention when Jesus did it? Because right. that wasn't all he did. Right. The authority, John ten eighteen. this is what you need to share with your friend, Yari, explains exactly what Jesus did. From the Father, first strike against suicide. I have been given authority to lay down my life, maybe half check for suicide, but not at my hands. Read Acts chapter 2. He repeatedly addresses the audience that ordered him to death. Jesus didn't illust- or, um, manipulate them into doing that. They committed the botch trial. They were the ones that handed him over to Pilate. They were the ones who, yeah, demanded crucifixion of him. Jesus, knowing this in advance, doesn't make him the cause of it. It's like accusing God of creating us as sinners because we would eventually sin. That's not 
rational. Right. But if, on the other hand, we take a step back and ask, what did Jesus say about what he did? Once again, I have been given the command from my Father to lay down my life and to take it up again. Now, as familiar or not as I may be with suicide, I do not have the authority for the second part, and I do not have the third writing and approval for said actions. So to compare it to suicide means to basically isolate the concept of death and what Jesus did, say that was the only thing that he did, and to basically play the, what would be the modern term, the bad lawyer, and twisting around God's motives and saying that, oh, well, all he wanted to accomplish out of this was a death. No, the resurrection was what was key in all of this. That's what separates Jesus from the junkie. So make sure, Yari, that when we're looking at things like the death of Jesus, first of all, we go off of the facts we have of history. Second, we let him describe what he's doing. We don't attribute to him what we thought he was doing. And fourth and finally, when it comes to this whole situation, make sure that the conclusion comes testing not only our facts leading up to the information, but even more importantly, we test the conclusion itself because that just doesn't match up. Yeah, and the only analogy I'd add to that is, uh, you know, if, say, in wartime, uh, a guy in a foxhole, uh, the enemy throws a grenade into the foxhole and he falls on the grenade to save the lives of the rest of his fellow soldiers in the foxhole, no one ever accuses someone of doing that, of committing suicide. Right. So, you know, the analogy just doesn't fit. Yep. You know, Jesus took... You know, something far worse than a grenade for us in order mm-hmm. to save us. Uh, we're the ones who kind of pulled the pin and we're waiting for it to blow up. But mm. he's the one who uh, took the blow, if you will. Right. So not really related. The, the analogy breaks down. Probably a better analogy to see it in that uh, analogy of uh, falling on the grenade. Yeah, yeah. makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Yari, for that, for that question. Hope that helps you out and your, your friend as well as you have conversation with him. A uh, question from Torah Beth. What is the biblical, um, the Bible's position on authority? How should we or should we not submit to authority? I guess especially if the authority is not biblical, um, government, police. How as Christians should we always submit to authority? Should we not if it's not based on biblical principles? Well, the overwhelming verdict of Scripture is whenever possible, hmm. uh, submit to the authority not just when we agree with the person wielding the authority or right. whether we endorse them or we say, oh, they're wonderful people. And uh, another key, even if the authority is being executed justly because Jesus himself submitted to an unjust execution and true. jury. And, uh, you know, again, Romans 13 says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities for there's no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority, resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. If you want to be unafraid of the authority, do what is good, and you'll have praise from the same. For he's God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he's God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For, this, for because of this you also pay taxes." For they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due. Customs to whom customs. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, historically, the Apostle Paul was writing these words when Nero 
was the emperor of Rome. Nero, whose practices towards Christians were absolutely barbaric, uh, just uh, almost beyond our comprehension, the things that Nero did. But Paul didn't say, well, you know, we would obey authority, but that Nero guy's in power, so forget about it. You know, what the, the priority of Scripture is, is that God has ordained human government as a way to restrain evil in this world and reward what is good, generally speaking. So whenever possible, uh, because of conscience sake, we should submit to the authority. You know, for instance, you know, this whole idea about conscience sake and, you know, if you do good, you won't have to uh, fear evil. If you do evil, uh, be afraid. You know, I think we all experience this in one degree or another. You know, when we find our speedometer creeping up over uh, uh, the uh, legal uh, limit, and suddenly uh, we drive by and there's a, a cop by the side of the road with a radar gun, uh, we all immediately slow down, right? Because we're afraid of the consequences of the authority. Um, Speak for yourself. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, so uh, you know, th- that's an example of that. So whenever possible, we should. However, there are circumstances where uh, the God-given, God-mandated authority that has been given to government is abrogated by a government, set aside by a government, mm-hmm. by uh, telling believers to do something directly contrary to our higher loyalty to the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. Um, people will ask me, are you a Republican or are you a Democrat? I say, uh, I'm neither. I'm a monarchist because I serve a great king. Uh, we're told in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20 uh, that uh, our citizenship is from heaven, from which we yearly wait a savior. And so... I have that higher authority over me than even human government, and that is God. Now, when human government and God's clear commands are at odds, I have to go back to the passage we studied in Acts chapter 4, where Peter and John were told by the governing authorities never to speak or teach in the name of Jesus ever again. Their response was, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, You be the judge, but we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So at that point, the higher calling of God upon our lives takes precedence over the commands of of the governing authorities. They've abrogated their right to be God's representative Mm. by telling us to do something that is unbiblical. Mm. And in those cases, we should stand for what's right, but we should also stand for what's right with the full understanding that we may have to receive the consequences for that stand. Mm. Uh, you know, we can, oh my gosh, you know, I'm getting punished for this. Or, gee, they threw me in jail for, for not going along with some ungodly dictator or something like this. Or I lost my job because, uh, you know, they wanted me, you know, say, as, as a doctor to perform abortions or things like this. Right. Well, okay, you got to be ready for that consequence if you're going to make that kind of a decision. But, of the time, um, the government uh, deserves our respect. You know, it was uh, uh, not long after our church got started, but, uh, you know, someone came to me and they said, you know, there's some people that are like uh, meeting like outside the church. They're they're asking people to come outside the church because they want to share something with them. And it it sounds like it's kind of like weird or something like that. Well, I found out that these people were saying, you know, we found out that there's, uh, you know, nothing in the Constitution that says that we are to pay taxes. 
And boy, if you you come with us to this meeting in Phoenix, we're going to explain to you how it's the godly thing not to pay your taxes uh, to the government because you know they do this and this and this. And uh, you know, I I was taken aback by that. You know, first of all, truth doesn't sneak. You know, if this is yeah. really true, you don't have to come here. I want to tell you something, right. uh, kind of a thing. You know, step in the back alley or or things like this. But secondly, that flies in the face of what Scripture says. It says, pay your taxes. Mm. You know, it doesn't say, well, I don't like, uh, you know, the, uh, the uh, Respect for Marriage Act, so therefore I'm not going to pay my taxes ever again. Mm. No, it doesn't say that. It says, pay your taxes. You're, you know, in a sense, contributing to the kingdom of God. In, in 99% of the, the circumstances, the people involved in government are God's minister uh, there to carry out his will, to restrain evil and reward what's right. So, um, you know, we, uh, we need to recognize that, that uh, generally speaking, we need to submit to the authorities because God's put them there. But we also need to realize, say, if you found yourself um, coming to Christ after the rapture and the tribulation, and they said, you've got to take the mark of the beast. Uh, you don't say, well, Bible says submit to authority, so I guess here we go. I guess right. i got to bow down and worship this guy and take his mark and his image. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, you don't do that because the greater law of Scripture tells you not to do such a thing. Yeah. How does this, the drive to um, defund the police, which is a hot topic right now, how does that fit into, what's the, what's the driving force behind that? It's essentially the same mistake people are making in noting that there are corrupt politicians. There are also corrupt cops. Uh, David Wood made a video as an ex-con himself, uh, said there's four types of people in any position of power, specifically the people he met in prison, uh, the guards there. There were people who were just there to do a job, just following orders, just trying to get through their nine to five. There are people who want to be liked. There are people who want to, you know, not necessarily help the problem, but contribute to the problem because others' view of them is more important than them actually doing their job. There are people who are really invested in doing their job. We called them in high school tryhards, guilty. And then there were people (laughs) who were narcissists, people who loved the fact that they had control over people and would flex it as much as they could. Mm -hmm. I also called that middle school. The point being made is this. When people misuse good things, it becomes a bad thing. But the usage of that power in submitting to it is something that they will also be accountable for. The only reconciliation we have or comfort that we have in this day and age is Psalm 73. The wicked have an end, and they will be brought to the same place that we will. If you're put in a situation where you're being unjustly abused, if we're put in a situation where we're being unjustly sued and therefore obviously not going to pay it, we're going to end up in prison for it, we'll submit to that authority knowing that God will be our defense. If, on the other hand, you are living in a nation where you are within your rights to say, for example, request an attorney, uh, contact a congressman to challenge unjust laws and so forth, you can also exercise that. Paul the Apostle, in his uh, time sharing the evangelizing throughout Rome, um, he exercised his right as a Roman citizen when he thought he was being unjustly treated. But he also, note, allowed himself to be taken into the Roman garrison. He allowed himself to be subjected to multiple stonings, lashings, and other unjust treatment by the Jews. They exercised and, note, abused that authority, but he also utilized what rights he could as insofar as he was still where God wanted him. Right. Now, note, I've seen too many people, again, 
unfortunately, to take this seriously and saying, oh, I'm being persecuted. No, you repeatedly violated the officer's commands, which were reasonable. Oh, I was uh, hunted down by racist cops. No, you were driving 90 on the wrong way of the highway after they pulled you over <laughs> for a potential DUI because you had marijuana in the car. And they're just screaming, I still believe in you, Jesus. I praise your holy name. And it just makes us cringe. The point is this. God will be your defense if you're guilty or innocent. If, on the other hand, people who abuse that authority and power will also be ultimately standing before God with that guilty or innocent. When we see corrupt politicians, the only thing we can do is remind ourselves of the only good one. If we see unjust wars being committed, we can only fall back on him who, Revelation 19 says, in righteousness judges and makes war. Make sure that when these... uh, movements are started and founded and saying, if we just fix the training programs, then there won't be these narcissists or lazy police officers anymore. There will. (laughs) If on the other hand, you say, oh, well, if we just get all the politicians out and replace them with good ones, our ones, then everything will be fixed. Great. That'll work out. The last 5,000 times it's been tried. Make sure that your hope and your focus and your comfort isn't on what you think will happen, what your community is telling you is going to happen, what the news is telling you is happening. Make sure that your focus is, look, whatever happens, I'm going to let God be my defense. If I have to submit to unjust authority, I will. If I can utilize my rights to prevent that abuse from taking place to me, I will as long as I can. That's our only comfort in a fallen world. Yeah. Very good stuff. Hope that helps you out, Torbeth. Thank you for that question and being part of the show today. Uh, question from uh, Talon, and I, uh, I think I'm interpreting this question properly. Um, does everyone have the opportunity to accept the Holy Spirit rather than Jesus? And is that why it's important to preach the gospel? I think what the question is... I don't understand. Yeah, I think what it is is like someone in you know a tribe in Africa, can they receive God without knowing about Jesus, the gospel? So they might receive, you know... Receive well, the Holy Spirit. Yeah, we've talked about this quite a bit. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I guess maybe uh, the the uh, best uh, way to uh, to answer that is uh, Talon was the one who asked the question. Yes, yeah. Talon. Yeah, uh, Talon. The the best way to answer that question is to realize that God's not limited. Uh, you know, but God will always do things in harmony with His Word, and this mm-hmm. is what I mean. Uh, if you want to see how God will move heaven and earth to get the gospel to one individual, read through Acts chapter ten how God reached a Roman centurion, a guy from a completely different culture, completely paganized culture, uh, an individual who was well-placed in, in authority in that culture. Why in the world would this guy ever be interested in the God of the Jews? We're a conquered culture. Mm-hmm. And yet God did this amazing spiritual work in him, drags Peter kicking and screaming <laughs> literally to share the gospel with him. Uh, moves on his heart in such a powerful way, Peter doesn't even finish his sermon before the Holy Spirit is poured out upon him. No less likely individual to receive the gospel than this guy Cornelius. And, uh, you know, one of the things on uh, Acts 17 apologetics, they talk about uh, the uh, repeated uh, incidents where people in uh, heavily Muslim areas will have these dreams about Jesus and uh, and, uh, him explaining the way of salvation uh, to them. And uh, just uh, an amazing detail. Joe Rosenberg's uh, book, Epicenter, details a lot of these things. And it's not an isolated phenomena. Mm. You know, if an individual is truly being convicted and led to Christ by the Holy Spirit, uh, the Holy Spirit will always, always, always speak to them 
regarding Jesus. Mm. Uh, you know, in fact, uh, Jesus himself said this in verse 17, I have so many things to say to you now, but you cannot bear them. However, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will tell you things to come. Now listen to this. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, therefore I say he will take what is mine and declare it to you. There is no ministry of the Holy Spirit that uh, is legitimate that doesn't include uh, leading a person to who Jesus is. And in uh, books we mentioned like Don Richardson's Eternity in Their Hearts or even Peace Child that he wrote, uh, we see that God hasn't been subtle about leaving those kind of either hints in a culture or direct interventions sometimes mm. where a shaman or a witch doctor will say, well, you know, I was teaching all this, you know, horrible, degrading stuff, and then the true God came to me. Well, what did the true God say? Well, that his son died for me. And, uh, you know, and I mean, these are people that never wow. had any exposure to the gospel, the gospel yeah. whatsoever. So, yep. you know, when we ask questions like this, we have to be very careful, Talon, because we're limiting God. You know, we kind of say, well, how in the world could God? Well, God's God. He can certainly do that. God of miracles. But yeah. understand, he won't say, well, it's just too hard for me to actually get him to believe about Jesus. <laughs> Nothing's too hard for God. Yeah. So, yeah. Very good. Anything to add to that, Sean? It's great. Well, I hope that helps you out, Talon. We're, man, five minutes left in the show. Running away with us. So Dwayne has a, a question. Uh, what are we supposed to do if someone passes judgment on you over something you do? He, he gives the example of his mom had to take pain medication mm. to help with her pain, and some would say that she's she's sinning. Now, Pastor Scott, you had similar. I mean, yeah. you won't mind me sharing because you've shared it from the pulpit. Sure. But your you know your recent uh, cancer treatment and surgery, someone came to you and said, "Hey, you you know you just need to believe and have faith and be healed. Right. You don't need the Mayo Clinic and all that kind of right. stuff." A similar thing. How do we deal with someone that? kind of passes that kind of judgment on um, something that we choose to do, maybe medically or otherwise? Well, I think, uh, I think knowing the scripture, I think, is really key. And, and the reason I say that's really key is because, uh, you, know, you know, you got an opinion, I got an opinion, all God's children got an opinion. Mm -hmm. But it's not opinions that, and man's opinions that are going to count. We stand before the Lord. You know, as far as, uh, you know, taking any kind of medication or something like that, that that's not... Uh, a godly thing to do. Boy, I, I just think of what uh, Paul told Timothy in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 23. He said, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Now, this is coming from a guy whose sweatbands healed people. <laughs> uh, I mean, a guy who had a pretty powerful healing ministry. Yeah. And you go, oh, Timothy, come on, you know, just have faith, buddy. You know, I'll pray for you and I'll send you, you know, a magic uh, healing sweatband and then you'll be delivered. Yep. You know, he said, use the traditional remedies. And if God supernaturally intervenes, then that's great. Uh, so, you know, when someone says, um, you know, oh, gee, you know, you're taking pain medication. Why don't you trust God? Yeah. To me, I think it's not only unbiblical, Dwayne, but I think it's cruel. You know, generally yeah. speaking, people aren't on pain meds because they like them. Right. Um, you know, particularly in the situation you described. Now, obviously, there's addicts. Uh, there's people that will get on oxy because, you know, they like the buzz. And yeah. that's a completely different situation. You have a legitimate medical condition that requires legitimate intervention mm -hmm. by legitimate, you know, palliative care. Nothing wrong with that. That, that is something that we should receive with gladness. Uh, knowing that God has provided these sort of things for our welfare. Mm -hmm. Anything you'd add to that? Okay. No. 
real, real super quick. I wonder if we can get to this. A question from Holly. Um, will the rapture happen all at once or incrementally? And the thought is God is not an author of confusion or chaos, and surely the rapture would create chaos. So will it all happen at once or will it happen a few at a time? And we literally have like a minute. Yeah, to deal with five fallacies. Uh, let's first... <laughs> you got this. Yeah. Let's first uh, deal with the problematic assumption that because of an isolated consequence of something that I'm not actually describing properly, that God's therefore responsible for it. Well, first of all, what is the rapture? The rapture is an end times event where God has made a provision for his people to escape his wrath, all of 1 Thessalonians 5. It's an act of mercy, not of wrath. The consequences, as left behind in other works have oftentimes illustrated, will leave uh, airplanes unmanned, cars unmanned, and, you know, people uh, in weird situations, but not actually being there. It's not with the goal or intent to cause chaos. It's keeping them from the state that's going to be even more chaotic than that. They've been warned that this is going to happen for literally almost 2,000 years, and people mm. have either chosen to proactively ignore it or to uh, live in light of it. And the thing that you need to remind your friend uh, Christine about, Holly, is just that. The Great Tribulation is a time of God's wrath, and if she wants to think about it in these terms, if a tornado siren uh, goes off 20 minutes early and you ignore it the entire time, oh, how could the government neglect us when the tornado goes through your house? No, you chose to ignore those warnings. The fact that the consequences right. happened that you ignored and failed to make the benefit opportunity of is the real issue there. We can deal with this more next time. Sounds good. <laughs> well, great show. Thank you for joining us and being part of the broadcast. Have a wonderful Jam weekend. Packed. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. Um, have a wonderful weekend. God bless you. See you back here on Monday. Same time, same You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.